Open your Bible to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Let me read the context of the passage we're going to be looking at. I'm going to start in verse 8, and I will read through verse 14. This morning we will be looking primarily at verses 11 and 12. Romans 13, start in verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for the privilege of examining your word, hearing your word, reading your word, and having your word read us. And Father, we pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that you would guide us with clarity, precision, accuracy. And Father, would you produce in us the transformation and the worship that you would desire us to have from this word. For we need both. We need worship and delight and satisfaction and contentment in you. And we need transformation from you. Would you be pleased to accomplish both in our lives this morning? We pray in the name of our exalted Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Larry Walters had always dreamed of flying. But because of poor eyesight, he was not granted admission to the United States Air Force that he longed to do so that he could learn to fly. So he made his living with another form of transportation. He was a truck driver. Quite a come down in his opinion. And so he continued to think about flying and dreaming of sailing the skies. At some point, he came across the story of Al Mingalone. In 1937, Al purchased 32 weather balloons, tied them to a parachute harness, grabbed a camera, and floated up to 700 feet in altitude so he could take some pictures, some film for Paramount Studios for whom he worked. The story made Larry Walters think, I wonder... So in 1982, Larry Walters purchased 45 balloons, weather balloons. And on July 2nd of 1982, he strapped them to his lawn chair, 
grabbed a sandwich and a two-liter Diet Coke, a pellet gun, a CB radio, and a camera, climbed into his chair, and his friends cut him loose. He ascended quickly to 16,000 feet into federal airspace and the landing pattern for LAX airport. Two pilots radioed in to the control towers, and you just got to wonder what exactly they said. There's a guy in a balloon chair off my right wing. After 45 minutes of sailing the skies, he pulled out his pellet gun, and before he dropped it, he was able to shoot out enough balloons that he began making a slow descent, and he landed some 45 minutes later. He landed, surrounded, as you might imagine, by a group of reporters, and they asked him the obvious question, why? And he responded, It was something I had to do. I had this dream for 20 years, and if I hadn't done it, I think I would have ended up in the funny farm. He might have anyway. (laughs) He just couldn't sit there. He just had to do something. And for the believer in Jesus Christ, there is similarly a time when we must act. It's time. It's time to act. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is teaching us in this passage, these verses. This is a theme that runs throughout the Scriptures, but it is particularly apparent in this passage, in these verses. Brothers and sisters, it is time to intentionally act on the salvation we have been given God has given us an amazing treasure of salvation. And it is time to take that seriously and to act on what we have been given. In this passage, these four verses, 11 to 14, the apostle calls us to three actions and he provides us with one large motivation for why we are to act. I want to look this morning with you at the first action that he calls us to and consider his motivation. And then next time we'll look at the other two actions that he calls us to. It's time to act. It's time to be intentional about our faith. It's time to work out our faith. What would the apostle have us to do? Whoops. It is time to do something. It is time to to do something. Remember, Paul has just told us in verses 8 through 10 that we are to love one another in the church body. And so when Paul says in verse 11, do this, our minds immediately go back to what he has just said about loving those who are in the body of Jesus Christ. We're we're to take seriously that call to love one another, uh, to fulfill the command that God has given us. And God has, excuse me, Paul has given us a a motivation to love one another in verses 9 and 10 because we're to do that because loving one another fulfills the law. This is the very thing that God has called us to do as believers connected in this one massive body of Christ. 
But he's about to give us an even greater motivation for loving one another. But I think when the apostle says, do this, he's talking about something much more than just loving the church. I would submit to you that he is talking about everything that he has just unfolded for us in chapters 12 and 13. He is referring to the believer's submission to the government in chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Every person is to be in submission to the government, verse 1. Verse 7, render to all that is what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Do this knowing the time. He's referring as well to the believer's relationship to those who are opposed to him and those who would do him harm. That's in chapters 12, verses 14 to 21. And we're to to trust God in overcoming any kind of oppression that is against us and that God will do what is righteous for those who are sinning against us. So he says in verse 21 of chapter 12, do not become over, not, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do this knowing the time. He also is helping us to think about the believer's relationship to other believers in the body of Christ. That's verses 9 to 13 of chapter 12. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. In fact, that whole section is primarily about loving and caring for one another. And again, he would say, do this, knowing the time. He would have us understand that our use of spiritual gifts is is something that we also ought to be active and aggressive and intentional in carrying out. That's chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. And of course, you are well familiar with chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, his call to sanctification. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice that is acceptable to God. That's your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind What's interesting is that whole section, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, he really echoes in this section, particularly in verses 13 and 14, put off ungodly sin and put on the righteousness of Christ. And, and 12, 1 and 2 and 13, 12 to 14 serve as something of, of brackets around this massive section on what are we supposed to do in the body of Christ and how are we to live and how are we to function. And all these things we should remember are an overflow of what God has provided for us. He spent the first 11 chapters telling us of what we have been provided for in our salvation from God. And because of that salvation that we have received, that salvation that comes to us because we are sinners, a salvation that imputes the righteousness of God to us, a salvation that comes for the purpose of sanctifying us, and a salvation that is out of God's sovereign will and sovereign plan, we're to act. It's time. Because of God's work in these areas, there's a fitting response And that response is that we be sanctified in every area of our lives. This is exactly what he is summing up when he says, do this. Paul, at the end of the section that is in front of us, verses 12 to 14, is going to be a lot more specific than what we're going to see this morning about the kinds of ways that our sanctification ought to look and what we ought to specifically do in our sanctification 
For now, let's just notice that Paul is being purposeful in calling us to sanctification. Brothers and sisters, it's time to take our calling seriously. To understand that our salvation should produce genuine change and transformation in our lives. And really what the apostle is doing is he's drawing out the implications from what he has said about sanctification. And we don't have time to go back and listen to those 40 sermons again from chapter 6 to 8. Okay, it wasn't quite 40, it was 30 something. But but remember chapter 8? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So if if you believe in Christ and you have the spirit of God in you, then the same spirit that raised Christ will raise you. And what are the implications of that? Verse 12. So then, brethren, we're under obligation not to the flesh. You're free from the flesh. You've been liberated from your previous nature, we're under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you have lived, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's to what you've been called. And Paul now is fleshing that out for us in this passage that, that we might understand the, the privilege, the honor, and the responsibility of being sanctified. Now, as we think about sanctification, we understand a couple of things. One is, there is no such thing as an unsanctified believer. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be sanctified. That does not mean that every believer in Jesus Christ is perfectly sanctified. As if we, we come to faith in Christ, we're dead in our sins, and we're down here at the bottom of the scale. We, we come to faith in Christ and instant sanctification, perfectly sanctified immediately. Nor is he talking about a straight line trajectory towards Christ. He's talking about the up and down process of sometimes we get it and sometimes we don't. But the overall process is moving towards Christ likeness. We're moving towards Jesus. There is not perfection, but there is clear direction in our lives. And we're moving to him who has saved us. Here the apostle is particularly implying purpose, intention. Are you taking your calling to be sanctified seriously? Do this. It's time. Says Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Seminary, Keith. No man coasts into Christ-likeness. No man coasts into Christ-likeness. Neither does anyone become a more faithful man of God by accident. No man grows in godliness who does not intend to. More than intentionality is needed. But unless one deliberately pursues holiness, he will suffer the spiritual decline and the ministry-destroying effects caused by the gravity of worldliness. It's time, brothers and sisters, 
It's time. Why should we do this? What's the reason for being intentional, purposeful? Why should we take action? He's going to tell us four reasons why we should take action. One, in verse 11, act because you know what time it is. Because you know what time it is. Do this. Everything he said in verses, in chapters 12 to 13, do this. Knowing the time. There are a couple things we need to notice about that phrase, knowing the time. One is the word time is not a a, a reference to chronological time, as in, Pastor, do you know what time it is? It is 11, 29, 25, 26, 27. Yeah, I'm well aware. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the season of life. What Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that we read earlier, chapter 5, do you know the times, the epochs, The seasons of life. Do you know the era in which you live? Do you understand the character of the times? And secondly, we should notice about this phrase that we should know. That we should understand the time in which we are living and live accordingly. You know, Paul is... Previously, even in this book, made reference to how our knowledge of truth and circumstance should compel us to live in a particular way. For instance, chapter 5, verse 3, and not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. We can find joy in our tribulations and we intentionally rejoice in our tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. So we act to rejoice because we have a particular form of knowledge. He'll say something similar in chapter 8. You are familiar with this verse. And we know... That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. What we know about Christ and our salvation leads us to exalt Christ and to make Christ first in our lives. We want Him and nothing else. Act because you know. So the question is, what time is it? What time are we living in? Well, there are two answers. We are living in a time of darkness, sin, and depravity. Remember chapter 1? They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, and God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, hater of God, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, 
inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And though they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. They cheer on the sidelines when people are reprobate in their lifetimes. That sounds like 2021 to me. Do you know the time you're living in? Second Corinthians chapter four. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse four, in, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We live in a blind world. Are you aware of the time? There's another time that we're living in. We are living in a time of God's sovereign rule and authority and His coming kingdom. Chapter 5. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, verse 17, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, that's you today. You're reigning in Christ. The shackle of sin has been torn off. You're no longer bound So Paul can say in chapter 6, verse 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We live in that day now, today. That's our day. Chapter 8, verse 18, what time is it? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's suffering now, but it's short and it's about to end. Ephesians chapter 5, the apostle says, verse 8, For you were formerly darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. The world around us is dead. But brothers and sisters, we are in light. That's what time it is for us. And Paul is appealing to the Romans to be changed because of their knowledge of God's timeline of the future. When we understand the shortness of the duration of time on this earth and the importance of eternity and what God has for us in eternity, that compels us to obedience and holiness and the pursuit of sanctification so that we are living in the image of Christ our Savior. I fear that sometimes we are bored 
And we easily give up on the process of sanctification because we are bored with and we have given up on heaven. We're not captivated by heaven. We're not captivated by the glory of God. We're not captivated by Christ and everything that will be revealed to us there. And because we aren't captivated about our God in heaven, we are interested in holiness here. Brothers and sisters, it's time. It's time. One of our problems is our perspective about time on earth. It feels like it will never pass. I remember talking to a member of our church many, many years ago, decades ago. And she had just had a baby. And I was calling her about some ministry item. I don't even remember what I was calling her about. And I said, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so tired. I just don't think I'm ever going to sleep again. You remember? And I, I said, um, remind me how old the baby is? Six weeks. I'm never going to sleep again. Uh, she has slept since then. We, we just don't understand time on this earth. It feels like it's never going to pass. It feels like it's never going to pass for a couple reasons. One, perhaps because we are suffering. We're in, we're in some burden. We're in some trial. It just, it feels relentless to us. I've been there, so have you. Other, other reasons, perhaps because of our age, our youth. When I was 25, I didn't think about going to funerals. I didn't think about people dying. I didn't think about the end of the age. When I was 30 and I was a pastor, I kind of had to, but honestly, I didn't think much about it. It just seemed like time was endless. It's not. And when we're young, we just tend to think, well, this is, gonna, this is just going to keep on going. It's perpetual. It'll just, it'll just always be here. It won't. Got to know the time. What time is it? It's time for these things to be passing away quickly. You need to know the time. We need to remember that our life here is only a foretaste of our life in heaven with Christ. And that Christ is coming. Relentlessly He is coming. He will come. It is a certainty. And when He comes, He'll make everything right. Not most things, not some things, not a few things. Every single thing will be made right for eternity. That's what time it is. We need to know that. Act. Take seriously your faith because you know what time it is. Act. Because this is no time for spiritual lethargy. Because we live in a dark world, And because eternity is coming soon, Paul says, verse 11, it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Here's another time for which we need to set our alarms, if you will. Here's another hour 
a time of life for which we should be vigilant, alert, and awake. Notice that he uses two terms for alertness in this short phrase. We are to awaken and we should not be asleep. And the implication is that some, like the sluggard of Proverbs, have already fallen asleep and they are slumbering. They have become apathetic and lazy in doing what is right in their calling as believers. They should have loved better. They should have persisted in mortifying their sin. The season of life demanded it. And they fell asleep. It was no time to sleep in Paul's day. And brothers and sisters, it is no time for us to sleep either. Now notice when Paul says here, we shouldn't be asleep, we should be awake. He's really actually talking about a kind of alertness that we should not have. What Paul is talking about is that we should not be awake, alert, attentive to, following after the ways of the world and being deluded by sin and its enticements. Paul is saying, don't be awake to the world and the flesh. That awakeness to the world will make you forgetful and sleepy towards God. And that's the thing he's telling us to avoid. Now, brothers and sisters, the flesh is inclined to be alert to the world and the flesh and sin. We're enticed by it and the flesh naturally gravitates towards being tantalized by the world. And when we follow that temptation, it will put us to sleep spiritually. Notice that Paul says there is urgency here. It is already the hour. The hour to awaken is already here. It's not, it's not like set your alarm for five o'clock tomorrow and wake up then. No, set your alarm for now. Now is the time. This is no time to lazily prepare. Now is the time to get into action and start working. And the implication is that some of the readers might be tempted to slumber when they should be awake and alert and pursuing sanctification. And you can't read that and not think about Jesus' three friends on the night in which he's betrayed, can you? Your mind just naturally goes that way. They should have been awake. They should have been alert. They should have been persisting. And they're just asleep like you and me. So the question is, where where have you become lazy? Where have you become spiritually apathetic? What discipline have you given up? What pet sin are you continuing to indulge? What have you stopped fighting against? We're going to see it more next time in verses 12 to 14. But brothers and sisters, spiritual life is war. And it is nothing less than that. It is a battle. It is not easy. It is not for the faint of heart. It takes getting up early and working hard and persisting and being attentive. And at times it will leave you exhausted. 
In fact, as I was thinking about this week, about that this week, I thought about the analogies that that Paul gives in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Remember verse 4? No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Verse 5, And if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Verse 6, The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to share in the crops. Consider this! It's a war! It's... It's exhausting exertion. It's early and late labor. If you're giving up because it's hard, then you've fallen asleep and you will crash and you will burn. Let me also encourage you that when you fight for your spiritual life and when you stay alert, the Lord will also give you everything you need to persist in that fight. Remember what he has said previously about sanctification? 826. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. Brothers and sisters, you're not alone. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ and He has been given to you to help you in your weakness, which you invariably will have. And not only do we have the Spirit of Christ, but we have Christ. Chapter 8, verse 31, What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who is against us, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all? How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Everything you need, Christ has given to you. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you have fallen asleep and you aren't alert to the pervasive evil in the world and you aren't alert to the overwhelming power of Christ, then consider this, me walking into your spiritual bedroom and shaking you on the shoulder and say, wake up! It's time. This is no time for spiritual lethargy. Time is short. Act. Because it's almost time for our final salvation. For salvation, now rather, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. We are marching closer, ever closer. Some of you are nodding. It's coming close, preacher. It's coming close. And the culmination of our salvation is coming. I don't think the apostle here is talking about our aging. So, well, preacher, you're walking in the shadow of 60. It's getting close for you, dude. I'm 25. It's a long way away for me. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the culmination of the ages when Christ will set up his kingdom For some of us, we are going to enter that through death. And some of us will enter it through rapture, through being alive. 
But what he's talking about simply is the fulfillment, the final end of salvation. And the final end of salvation is glory in heaven with Christ, Christ reigning. He's talking about the fulfillment of our yearning. That we long for heaven and being shed of this body. And being in glory. And Paul here is reminding us that we are about to see the wonders of glory. It's close for all of us. James chapter 5. You too. Be patient, verse 8. Strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. So that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold... The judge is standing right at the door. It's coming. So soon. Remember what John says? I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book and of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which were written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He's coming. And it is not time to waste now. The end of our salvation is so close. It's imminent. Any second. It could be before we say amen this morning. And what a glorious way that would be to go. It's coming, brothers. It's coming. Don't be lazy and apathetic about loving and persisting in the fight against sin. As if Christ's return is a long way away and has no relationship to you. Time is short and we must live in light of that awareness. There's one other reason why we should take spiritual action towards our sanctification and that is it is almost time for Christ's return. The final motive is given to us at the beginning of verse 12 and it's related to what he has just said but it's even more specific The night is almost gone and the day is near. What day? Notice that he is talking about a specific day, that day. And in the context, we understand that it is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was a a common Old Testament phrase. It was a it was a broad term. It could be used in a number of ways. But one of the dominant ways that it was used by the prophets was the establishment of the kingdom of the Messiah at the end of the age. And it is, it is clear that that's what the apostle would have us to understand here. The day is coming. In fact, that's the way New Testament writers use it as well. They speak of the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of our Lord Jesus, the day of Jesus Christ, the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, the day of redemption, the day of wrath, the day when God judges, the evil day, that day, the day. It's here. He's coming. 
He's going to set up his throne and he is going to rule us. And that, brothers and sisters, should drive us, compel us and motivate us to sanctification and holiness. Remember what the Apostle Peter says in his second letter, chapter three, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and in godliness since Christ is coming Let's be holy. Let us have that as our motivation to godliness. And he puts that return here in verse 12 in contrast to the night. This age and this time in this world are nearly finished. The age of this world is short and it is moving progressively and steadily forward to its end. And doesn't it feel like the world is about to implode on itself? There's a reason. Because the night is almost gone. And if the night is going to be gone... Why would we pursue the things of the night when day is coming? The new age is about to peak over the horizon. Light is dawning. Satan's doom is coming. 1620. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The night is almost gone. And so the motive for pursuing sanctification is clear. God's judgment against everything evil and sin and everything that is unjust is coming. And it's coming soon. And that also means our rest is coming soon. And if we'll be living for him there, then let's live for him here as well. Says one commentator, on the certainty of the event, Christ's coming, our faith is grounded. By the uncertainty of the time, our hope is stimulated And our watchfulness aroused. He's coming. He's going to make it right for all eternity. Let's make that our motive to live with him. A generation ago, in a book that was particularly popular at the time, Joseph Bailey wrote in the last thing we talk about, These few paragraphs. One Saturday morning in January, I saw the mail truck stop at our mailbox up on the road. And without thinking, except that I wanted to get the mail, I ran out of the house and up the road in my shirt sleeves. It was bitterly cold. The temperature was below zero. There was a brisk wind from the north and the ground was covered with more than a foot of snow. Sounds like Texas in February. I opened the mailbox and pulled out the mail and was about to make a mad dash for the house when I saw what was on the bottom underneath the letters, a burpee seed catalog. 
on the front were bright zinnias. I turned it over. On the back were huge tomatoes. For a few moments, I was oblivious to the cold delivered from it. I leafed through the catalog, tasting corn and cucumbers and smelling roses. I saw freshly plowed earth, smelled it, let it run through my fingers. For those few brief moments, I was living in the springtime and summer. Winter passed. Then the cold penetrated to my bones and I ran back to the house. When the door was closed behind me and I was getting warm again, I thought about how, about my moments, how my moments at the mailbox were like our experience as Christians. We feel the cold along with those who do not share our hope. The biting wind penetrates us as them. But in our cold times, we have a seed catalog. We open it and smell the promised spring, eternal spring. And the first fruit that settles our hope is Jesus Christ, who was raised from death and cold earth to glory eternal. What would Paul have us to understand from these verses? It's time. It's time. How are you doing in your pursuit of sanctification and likeness to your Savior Jesus? It's time. Because this world is waning. And His kingdom is coming. Let us live now as we will live then. Father, we thank You. Just couple of verses but so powerful so hopeful for what you have for us and we need that reminder that this world doesn't win and we need that reminder that our Savior's coming and we need that reminder that we should do these things, pursuing sanctification in all the ways that you have delineated for us in this amazing letter to be like that Savior Jesus. Well, Father, would you give us boldness this week to pursue Him and do this as we will live then. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.